This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we're lucky to have not one, but two guests. I'll speak with professors Tiffany Florville and Vanessa Plumley about their recent book entitled Rethinking Black German Studies, Approaches, Interventions, and Histories. This book appeared with Peter Lang in 2018. Tiffany Florville is Assistant Professor of 20th Century European Women's and Gender History at the University of New Mexico. Vanessa Plumley is a new Assistant Professor of German and, Mellon fac- and a Mellon Faculty Fellow at Lawrence University. Hello, Tiffany. Hello, Michael. <laughs> hey, Vanessa. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm thrilled. So this is usually the part of the show where I ask authors to talk about their professional biographies. And sometimes I ask them to draw intersections between their lives and their topics. So our audience gets the treat of hearing this from both of you. (laughs) So uh, to start out, I was wondering if you could uh, discuss how your interest in the field of Black German studies first started. And I thought uh, with this question, we could start with Tiffany and then hear from Vanessa. Okay. Um, I think my sort of interest in Black German studies started when I lived in Germany as an exchange student. So I actually had a German pin pal, which initially started the interest in Germany, visited her for like a summer when I was in high school. And then I applied for a, a, an exchange program and got accepted for the Congress Bundestag um, scholarship, was able to sort of live in Germany for a year and learn the language. And it's there with my personal experience with Germans in race that I was intrigued by racialized communities in Germany. So at the time I was like interested in uh, Turkish German identity and in, in the like, and then I became even more interested in black Germany um, through some of the personal experiences that I had in gymnasium or German said some particularly offensive and racist things where I was like, Oh my goodness, I thought they got it. I thought race was, oh, I thought they were, you know, progressive. And it was through the course of the year that I was like, Oh, they're not as progressive. And really there are some entrenched issues here that I wasn't fully aware of on my own. So, and then when I came back to the U S I decided to uh, major in German literature and languages and history. And I was able to clip out of sort of intro level and some intermediary German classes. So I was able to sort of take like a lot of sort of upper division literature classes in which I was exposed to like more interesting cultural um, studies in the German perspective. And then sort of my interest in, you know, black German studies grew from there. So that's sort of a truncated story about it. I uh, went to the university of Madison for my MA um, where I focused on sort of women and gender history um, worked with Rudy Koshar as well as um, Mary Louise Roberts. And then I took some time off and then, decided to go back to graduate school and went to the University of uh, South Carolina and focused on sort of modern Germany. And in both iterations, my project focused on sort of race and gender in the German context and the implications of that. At Madison, I looked at sort of racialized imagery from the um, the Black Car on the Rhine and Simplicissimus, sort of satirical um, journal in Germany. And then the dissertation dealt explicitly with um, Black German agency, social mobilization, and sort of intellectual productions. Thank you, Tiffany. And uh, uh, Vanessa, how about your story? Yeah, I actually came to Black German studies through my attendance of the Nechtful Conference. It was held in New York City. And this was when I was an undergrad. And I encountered Dr. Tyrone Parker there, and he's an African-American scholar who works in world languages. So he's um, doing German, French, and Spanish. And he gave a presentation on his Fulbright research um, that he had had in Namibia. And through his presentation, I actually uncovered knowledge that I hadn't previously had access to. 
And I saw this really as my awakening to these sort of embedded um, colonial structures of the institution of higher education. And I say this because I was a double major in history and German, and I had never heard of the German colonial context and the aftermath thereof, especially in relation to like divided Germany in the post-World War II context. Um, and in this case, particularly East Germany and its solidarity aid to the former German colony of Southwest Africa, um, which is, of course, today's Namibia. And so I decided to focus my history research at the time for my thesis, my senior thesis on this topic, and was actually denied pursuing that opportunity um, by my history professors. And so I decided to do that for my German thesis instead. Um, and that was when I started to also, you know, have this initial moment of recognition that like racist contexts are embedded in sort of everyday um, realities. And so then I actually also had this encounter with my family um, where I started to recognize that racism was also something that wasn't just structural, but it also plays out on an individual level. Um, and that really pushed me to think about how I am complicit in the system of racism and what I can do to actually counter that and educate myself. And so I see my connection to Black German studies as something that really um, seeks to give me something that is of value. And it's really important to me to have a, an actual impact um, on the present day. I can't see myself working with like Goethe in the past unless, you know, I'm making some impact on contemporary situations. So I find this really rewarding and enriching. And, you know, Black German studies has really just been the field where I found, you know, my home, my collective community of home, my intellectual community as well. Great. Thank you. And th those are both uh, uh very, very interesting um, personal and professional biographies. And I'm sure we could go into more depth about them, but I think we need to start to move into the book a little bit. And uh, I'm really interested to hear kind of the story about the origins of this particular book. And you write about it in the introduction a little bit, which is interesting. You don't always get the, you know, the backstory the way you all provide it in the intro. Uh, you talk, I think at one point about how the two of you became connected professionally on the one mm -hmm. hand, but then you talk about, um, some of the work you did at, at, uh, conferences, um, specifically the annual meeting of the German studies association and how this work at conferences kind of be a develop the team of scholars that you feature in the book. So, um, Vanessa, I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk about this process a little bit for our audience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was the summer of 2011, and I was on a DAAD-sponsored grant in Berlin, and I actually had sent an email out to this network of scholars that um, existed in Münster, and they also work within the context of Black Germany and Black Europe, and my idea was that I could make some connections while I was there. And Silke Hakanesh, who at the time, she was at the JFK Institute in um, Berlin, she had responded to my email and she said, yeah, let's meet up at the Maya Imufer. They're doing this memorial ceremony today. They're installing a plaque. Um, and it was just sort of this dedication. And she said, I'm bringing a friend. And that friend was actually Tiffany. <laughs> and um, at the time, she was working on her dissertation, just like I was starting to. And we immediately hit it off. And we decided that we would initiate um, a seminar on Black German studies. It was the first one the seminars had just started at the German Studies Association. They had just become what was like sort of this new engaging intellectual atmosphere where you could bring people from all different backgrounds and different disciplines together. And so the first one we organized in 2014 in the fall, and that was called Black German Studies Now and Then. Um, and we really brought together a bunch of different scholars. We also brought in Black British author and activist Sharon O2. Um, and then we followed up that seminar in 2014 with a second one in 2015, and that one focused more on Black Europe and the diaspora, and we also focused on sort of the political context of activism from theory to practice. And so we decided that the papers were so rich and the people who participated in these seminars were so incredible that we really wanted to produce something out of this. Um, and we were approached before that by um, Laurel Plapp at Peter Long International. She saw the potential in our seminars. She saw the potential in two very young, early career scholars at the time. And yeah, so she approached us at the GSA and said, you know, I think you should make this into an edited volume. And the rest is really kind of history. Well, that, it's a great story, and I think it's hard to underestimate uh, how important having, you know, collegiality and a colleague who you can trust from a kind of a very early stage in your career is uh, so, so invaluable. 
And I also think it's great that the publisher, uh, you know, uh, approached you about the topic. So, um, Tiffany, I'm going to, uh, at this point, maybe, uh, push you a little bit to discuss, uh, some of the content in the introduction and both you and Vanessa describe the field of black German studies at one point as inherently interdisciplinary. And if you look through the table of contents in this volume, of course, you can see that you have people coming from, um, you know, different types of uh, academic backgrounds. Um, So what was it like to assemble such a diverse array of disciplinary approaches? And what was it like to edit the work of people from such disparate fields? Yeah, those are really good questions, um, Michael. I think we were very excited to showcase junior scholars doing amazing work in the field of Black German studies. And, you know, for us, Black German studies emerged as a, 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 as a, as a field of study, not necessarily tethered to one disciplinary um, constraint, so to speak. So it sort of emerges from like, you know, from cultural studies, from anthropology, sociology, from a vast fields, vast fields. So we felt that it was a natural, um, a natural development to sort of engage with people who are doing this cutting edge work. And so it was sort of easy to find that work because it was readily available, made readily available to us by our seminars. It was difficult because there are so many people we wanted to include in the volume and for personal or professional reasons, we couldn't. So it was sort of exciting on the one hand that we're able to showcase the, the scholars that we did in the volume disappointing in others that we weren't able to include more people in the volume. Um, and so it was um, necessary for us not only to sort of include uh, sort of uh, sort of some of the interesting scholars that we'd known through conferences and a variety of workshops, but it was also interesting. It was also important for us to include sort of graduate students who are also sort of working through these um, issues. And Kavina's work, Kavina King's work in particular, is very, um, very significant for that reason. So, and editing this for uh, both Vanessa and I was uh, a labor of love. We basically edited all of the pieces twice before they went out for peer review, um, and we worked detailed. So our edits entailed line by line feedback to our, um, uh, I think, I think at times <laughs> I sort of looked at old versions of comments that we'd given the the contributors and they were quite bountiful, so to speak. Um, <laughs> so we certainly had a vision of where we saw these pieces going and their sort of evolution. And they by far met that. And they actually took our comments. They not only took our um, comments and integrated them, they, you know, bared with us after we gave them like a first round of revisions, a second round of revisions, and then they had to get reader reports. So they were very, very willing to work with us and really refine their writing and refine their prose and sort of really get down to what was the essence of their argument. And so I think that was, I think we were lucky on that in that respect that people weren't like, no, this is absurd. You've given us too much comments. We're not going to do what you want us to do. They actually were all very willing to, to integrate our, our feedback. And we, we certainly gave them constructive feedback. Um, and so I think for us, it's in, was important to not only sort of be as detailed as possible in terms of what we thought the pieces should be, but also to be extremely encouraging because we all know the review process can be a little bit, um, how should I put politely say this can be pretty messed up. That's not even, that's a sort of <laughs> not even, that's a, that's a non profane way of saying it. Um, and so I think we were very much encouraging in our feedback as well. So that was another thing to, to the, contributors actually thanked us for like our conscious and nice feedback that made them feel empowered to, to continue doing the the work on their, on their, on their pieces. So. That's great. And I'm sure the, having that background of face-to-face meetings at the, you know, at the GSA seminars and things like that probably helps that kind of give and take a little bit too. So it's not just faceless feedback going back and forth. Um, and I'm sure some of the other networking you've done at other conferences too. Um, all right. So, uh, Vanessa, I was wondering if I could ask you to maybe help out uh, those in our audience who are not as familiar with the field of Black German studies. And um, specifically, uh, I was wondering if uh, you could explain some aspects of the specialty that you highlight in your introduction and explore some of the reasons why it's so essential Um to all scholars of German studies, not just those who are working in the, in the specialty. 
Yeah, I actually think um, this question really segues nicely from the previous question um, on the inherently interdisciplinary uh, aspect of this field. So for me, Black German studies, and I think for, for Tiffany as well, we're pretty um, in sync in terms of how we sort of see it, define it, um, and utilize it. It really incorporates the lives, practices, cultural productions, scholarly work, and even transnational connections of Black Germans and Black people living in Germany. Um, and so this field really can't be bound. Um, and that just means that it draws connections to other areas of study. And I think our volume sort of attests to that. Um, performance studies, musicology, theater, gender studies, queer studies, literature, African-American studies, um, you know, Black studies, history. I feel like I could just list so many of these different fields that touch Black German studies. And I think that's what's so radical about it. And that's also what's really fascinating um, about it is that it can speak to literally any audience. Um, and so what I think we really hope that this volume does is expose it to people in fields that think that it has nothing to do with their field. Um, for, for, for me as well, I think that it's something that is a project that constantly sort of seeks to uncover and unravel complex complexity, I guess, and nuances um, and expose sort of the interconnections that we don't always tend to see. Um, and I really hope that this volume has has sort of done that. I think what we were trying to do is show how these pieces connect to one another, but also bring something new um, to the discourse and to the conversation. And also, I just really think that, you know, the field of Black German studies extends beyond sort of a geographic or national construct of sort of what that means or what that entails. It certainly um, takes into account where Black Germans have lived um, beyond Germany or where their connections are um, in relation to the diaspora. So that's how I would, I would define that for those not familiar. Great. Thank you. And then, uh, Tiffany, uh, I'd like to shoot another question your way at this point. And keeping, so, so part of the introduction that I found uh, particularly compelling was your section where you deal with the origins of the field. And at one point, you and Vanessa describe the field of uh, the origins of the field of Black German studies as, quote unquote, unmappable territory. And this was really interesting to me. I, I just found the, the section, um, uh, you know, fun to read more than anything else. But I was wondering if you could explain to our audience why the origins of Black German studies is unmappable territory. Yeah, this again builds quite nicely from the previous questions. Um, I think in the intro, we try to sort of establish that German studies as a sort of as this field really emerges in the informal settings. Um, and in one of the examples we use is sort of Peggy Pisha, who's a Black German activist and writer, um, remarking that it emerged from like informal kitchen table conversations. And that really is sort of, you know, p black German activists, intellectuals getting together at a variety of settings, not only in sort of kitchen tables, getting together at cafes, talking about their personal and collective histories, talking about their culture. Um, what we also think about it as this sort of idea of a sort of un unmappable territory is that it's really, you know, like Vanessa also just said that in some ways, black German studies is elusive. It's sort of, you know, untethered by disciplinary constraints or disciplinary boundaries. It's also untethered by sort of um, temporal and spatial boundaries. For example, you know, the, um, we mentioned the origins of it sort of emerging from sort of kitchen table conversations, but it actually sort of could be pushed back to like sort of discussions about um, moors in, you know, royal courts in the 16th and 17th century. And we pushed back to sort of you know, Black German um, Enlightenment thinkers um, in the 18th century. So like this is a sort of potential of Black German studies is that it's it's always expanding as new historical and cultural excavations are undertaken. And I think that's what our book tried to convey is that it is it has the potential to be so rich because you're not necessarily following just sort of these these linear notions of what um, what constitute Black German studies. You're allowing it to sort of continually evolve and be something much, much um, richer um, and um, fuller. And in the same token, we think that the that the field is is expanding in such um, an interesting directions in terms of how um, how scholars are, are using sort of theoretical um, 
tools to convey what notions of blackness um, exist, what notions of Germanness exist, what are the intersections between Germanness and blackness, what are the intersections between this larger notion of black diaspora and um, colonial history. So I think the potential for black German studies will continue to grow, but it's really not sort of bounded by one temporal or spatial component. It really continually sort of evolves based on new archival discoveries, based on sort of discussions with, you know, Black German activists, looking at sources in sources that you wouldn't necessarily think reveal the sort of narrative of Black German um, history or culture, but that actually um, you are able to sort of uncover new um, new episodes of what constitute um, Black Germanists. I hope, I hope that answers your question a bit. It does. Thank you. And so, um, Vanessa, uh, putting things back to you a little bit, um, later in the introduction, you and Tiffany discussed various efforts to decolonize German studies. What are some of the best methods uh, to achieve this, uh, and how should all of us in the field go about such a process? Yeah, this is a highly complex question and really hard to address, I feel, in such a a short time frame. Um, But I'll try my best. I'll see what I can do here. Um, I think, you know, German studies is really, it's hegemonically a white field of studies. And what I mean by this or or in this regard, it's really occupied by by white academics. And I feel that often um, academics and students of color have been sort of viewed as aberrations to the norm of the field and not viewed as, you know, contributors to it or active contributors to it. And I really think that a student body just reflects, you know, the material that a curriculum offers and, you know, without representation that mirrors sort of the reality of societies, it's only natural that those people who feel excluded from, you know, the content of a course view it as not applicable perhaps to their lives or that their lives and experiences aren't valued in that particular field. And so I think we really have to shift that and we have to really seek out um, materials and sources to incorporate into the classroom. And I think this spans, you know, from German studies to history to all sorts of other fields, like I mentioned before. Um, And I think they have to engage, obviously, in the life narratives of Black people in Germany, of queer Black populations, of even disabled Black Germans. Um, And that's just to name a few, obviously. We can obviously offer also a more accurate reflection of German society uh, through these integration of sources and materials. And I think it's also really important that these narratives not only be ones of struggle and oppression, I think we get that quite often, um, but what we also need to do is present these from the perspective of Black Germans as active agents um, who can empower themselves, who also have success in their endeavors. So I really think centering the voices and experiences of people of color um, rather than sort of relegating them to the sidelines or creating, you know, specific courses that address the topic that make it seem like they're sort of niche and not applicable to the broader context is really the first step. Um, but these are really just the beginnings, I think, of sort of decolonizing the academy in the sense Um for me, the, the organizations, the broader organizations that sort of house German studies, for example, the German Studies Association, um, AATG and ACTFL, they should really actively commit to inviting scholars of color to be present in these spaces, but then also to be, you know, keynote speakers, to have sort of that main um, headline. I think by putting them in other spaces that they haven't yet been represented in, that also signals and shows that they're committed to um, sort of a decolonial um, stance. And so there's this um, group of young scholars that are actively engaging in this process, and it's called the Diversity Decolonization in the German Curriculum Initiative. And this was started by Irvin Malakai and um, Regina Kaiser. And they're both young scholars who are sort of pushing the mold and and sort of confronting these organizations as well. I think there's a lot of young people who are really angry about the state of sort of affairs of what German studies is and how it represents itself sort of on a really official and formal scale. And I think, you know, um, calling that to attention, actively sort of seeking out ways in which that can be combated Um, They've started a a bulleted list that they sent out to the AATG of active um, ways in which they could approach decolonization. And I think that's the first step. It really is um, making this sort of visible and then actively contributing to that change. Um, But I also want to say that that's obviously the American, the United States context. And so German studies doesn't just exist in the U.S., 
Um, it's obviously something that transcends our boundaries and exists in Germany. It exists, you know, in Australia. It exists in all these other places. Um, and so, of course, you know, Black German scholars such as Maisha Alma, Peggy Pisha, um, Judy Gomich, Natasha Kelly, Grata Colomba, all of these people have been really at the forefront of those actions in Germany. Um, and they've continuously advocated for um, the decolonization of that curriculum and also just academia in general in Germany. Um, and so they're activist eff efforts that sometimes play out in the academy, but also are external to that and, and exist beyond the ivory tower are really important. And I think we have to keep that in mind that this is not something that is just inherently an academic project. It's certainly also something um, that needs to be approached from outside of that space. So yeah, de decolonization really requires a lot of investment. And um, I think it also requires white scholars to make room for and listen to scholars of color. Great, thank you. And I was sorry, sorry to throw you such a difficult question, but I think you did a great job with it. <laughs> um, and Tiffany, uh, as hopefully our listeners remember from the opening of the podcast, the title of the book is Rethinking Black German Studies. And uh, you and Vanessa returned to the theme of constant rethinking several times. So why does one need to consistently re rethink missing information in the archives and positionality, among other things, when one examines the historical and contemporary subjects explored in this book? Yeah, we think uh, that's, a, that's also an interesting question. I think for us, rethinking is a very introspective um, practice in which we're sort of challenging ourselves to recognize power structures, power differentials, and power imbalances. You're also recognizing the uh, your embedded biases in which how you sort of read and engage with your sources, the claims that you're making sometimes with your sources, as well as the silences that are, people are exposed to in the, um, in the archives. For example, um, this is sort of a related to our book, but when I was doing dissertation research, um, trying to find any material on sort of black Germans um, in Berlin, I wrote to a variety of archives, sort of um, state archives there, in which all of their responses was were like, no, we don't have anything on black Germans. Why don't I, good day to you. Uh, <laughs> good day to you, ma'am. I don't know what to tell you. And so I basically had to go to like countercultural archives in Berlin to find traces of black Germans. So I went to like the lesbian, the Spinbone lesbian archive and found traces of Adefra and Katarina Ogentoya, who was a prominent, um, who's a prominent black German activist who helped to sort of um, found initiative of Schwarze Deutsche, initiative, um, ISD, initiative of black Germans in Germany. So it's these moments where you're sort of challenging the silences in the archives and you're talking about what sort of historical narratives are being privileged over others what sources are being privileged over others? Why are certain um, historical actors ignored over others? And why, why is that sort of normalized in particular sort of approaches, historical and cultural approaches to um, studying people of African descent in the European context? Um, and for us in particular, we want to sort of do that as, as, as an ongoing practice to really sort of engage with what you're, you're, you're sort of engaged with what you're, pursuing and really sort of fully critically acknowledge your 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 own sort of space as either a scholar of color approaching these perspectives instead of not imposing that um, diasporic narrative as a white scholar who's approaching these narratives and we I think we sort of decided on this title because of our two seminars in which we saw in both seminars, you know, particularly sort of white scholars not necessarily critically recognizing their own positionality um, and not sort of in reifying categories in some ways and also sort of ignoring and silencing other scholars of color who are in the room. And so we think it's an imperative not only for, you know, people who are studying Black German studies, um, but it's also an imperative for people who are studying um, German studies as well as African diaspora studies, that these narratives that we're constructing are really based on powers, um, power asymmetries in which some people are privileged, some people are considered, some narratives are privileged over, the, over others, and we need to sort of reimagine why that's the case. 
And I think our, 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 I, I think our pieces do that quite lovely uh, and quite sort of brilliantly that they sort of suggest that black German studies isn't just this German studies, isn't just one thing and African diaspora studies isn't one thing. And in all of those sort of instances, they're bringing in a variety of sort of methodological tools to interrogate notions of blackness, bringing in a lot of um, methodological tools to interrogate sort of visual constructions of the other or sort of visual constructions of the other um, in, in, in sort of in musical or sonic renaissance. Um, and so I think it's important for you, for us as scholars to understand our, our own sort of um, baggage and our own sort of background and to sort of make a conscious effort to rethink and to reimagine and reconsider how power, uh, privilege, uh, our, and silences are all um, intersecting in how we approach our work. That, you know, even though as, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a historian and that, you know, the sort of essence of our historical inquiry is sort of objective, um, of, of seeking objective truth, you know, certainly with, you know, with quotation marks, but in actuality where it's imbued with a lot of sort of bias and, and, and sort of recognizing that um, fully. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Great, Tiffany. And I, I hope, uh, I think your, um, your answer really uh, indicates to our listeners, you know, some of the sort of brave tenaciousness it took as a young scholar to push back against an archivist telling you that your topic, you know, doesn't exist, right? And the 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 kind of courage that it takes to sort of try to change the power dynamics in a field. So um, that was great. Now, um, at this point, uh, I want to start looking at some of the chapters in the book, and I'm going to uh, Vanessa, I'm going to put you in uh, first in the awkward position of having to talk about uh, the work of one of the scholars who you included in the volume. And I know it's always uh, a little bit delicate when you're discussing uh, not your own writing, but someone else's. But uh, I'm going to do so anyway. <laughs> um, part one of the book focuses on uh, the, the theme is German and Austrian literature and history. And all three essays in this section are really good and were very interesting. But I was wondering, uh, just to take an example, um, I was wondering if you could describe uh, Megan O'Day's piece about life in the GDR for Namib Namibian children. Uh, I remember you know, coming across uh, a museum exhibit uh, in Cologne several years ago uh, with some art artifacts um, about GDR uh, solidarity with the liberation movement in Southwest Africa. I remember thinking uh, it would be really great to read some research on this topic. And, uh, you know, all these years later, I picked up your book and saw a piece that really shed some light on it. So I really appreciated that. And so how did you come across uh, Megan O'Day's research? Um, and I guess, how does it fit with the volume as a whole, you know, just using her kind of an, as an example, I guess, for some of the things you're trying to do with the volume? Yeah. Um, so Megan O'Day was actually one of the participants in the first seminar that we held at the GSA. Um, and at the time, she was a graduate student like me organizing the seminar, but we saw potential in her contribution and her piece um, because it actually brings something really new and compelling to the existing research on the GDR um, and its connections to current day Namibia. So there have been some publications, you know, on this specific topic um, and related to obviously the GDR children from the from Namibia, the so-called GDR children, because clearly they're not children anymore. Um, but yeah, this was also related to that initial what brought me into Black German Studies, um, Tyrone Parker's presentation. And so I, I actually knew some about this topic before listening to her present her paper. Um, but I thought what she was doing was something different because what she uh, tried to approach was sort of exposing the facade of solidarity actions that the, the East German government undertook in relation to socialist-oriented states um, that were trying to gain independence or that were on their, you know, in, in the moving in the direction of, you know, socialism. And so basically they they invested in those countries to in the hopes that they would become then sort of satellite states or places that they could invest in. And so on some level I see it as exposing 
this um, imperialism that is tied to Eastern Germany and socialism. Um, we tend to think of imperialism as something that's predominantly Western, but really Megan's piece brings that, I think, to the fore. And what she does in her, her research is also expose um, how autobiographies from these so-called GDR children um, differ. They're similar, and yet they're different. So um, she looks at Stephanie uh, Laya Alcongo's piece, um, Kalunga's Kind, and she also looks at Lucia Ngombe's um, Kind Nummer 95. Um, and both of these young women, and of course they're women, so we have to talk about the gendered aspect, <clears throat> excuse me, the gendered aspect of these pieces, but they're, they're young women who are coming, they're actually children at the time coming to East Germany, and they're raised in these sort of different scenarios. Stephanie Laya Congo was adopted um, by a white German family and sort of describes her situation as having multiple mothers and, and mothering situations, and her own mother was injured um, in, in the process of the liberation war, and so she is, is transported to East Germany from the Angolan refugee camp, and so is Lucia Ngombe, but she comes with all the other children who are in these sort of three or four waves of transport from the Angolan refugee camp to East Germany. And so in Lucien Gombe's uh, narrative, she talks about how she lives with other children in the schools and in the homes that they're placed in, um, in East Germany, and how that, that sort of created the sense of segregation from society. So we also see how these solidarity efforts aren't inherently unracist. Actually, in many ways, they perpetuate the same racisms um, that we see in, in Western German society. Um, and so I think what, what basically Megan O'Day does in her pieces add to the to the existing information, you know, that Peggy Pisha has engaged in in her um, pieces on East Germany um, and and others as well. And she really looks at individualist um, or individual levels of solidarity and how that plays out, but then also assesses sort of the collective context and and how the two differ. So we see the impact and the effects that solidarity aid has in um, individual narratives, but then we also see how the collective narrative sort of counters that and, and maybe isn't the same as what is actually felt. Um, and so I, I like that she approaches kinship bonds and how they form differently in the case of these particular um, youth that grow up in East German society detached from their Namibian heritage and culture um, and how they actually become German. It's almost like a process of becoming German. And then they're thrown back. Um, at least Lucia Ngombe was sent back, right? Um, Stephanie Laya Okongo, her, her family fought to keep her in East Germany. And there was also this sort of narrative of not wanting to keep someone with a disability. And so she also brings disability studies to Black German studies. And I think that's something that's completely under-researched. You know, Judy Gummich does a lot with that. Um, but there's so much more to be done in this context. And so um, the the sort of narratives of kinship and bonds, I think, really reflect what we see then later in the 1980s with um, Audre Lorde creating these communities. And I know Tiffany is working on her book project on um, the Black German women's movement and really addressing these sort of alternative kinship bonds. So I think th th it all connects, right? All this research really connects to one another um, and enhances what's already existing. That's great. Thanks. And so that gives us a little bit of a sample of part one. And part two of the book is entitled uh, Theory and Practice. And the first essay in this section is by uh, Kimberly Alicia Singletary. It's called Every Everyday Matters, Haunting in the Black Diaspor Diasporic Experience. So Tiffany, I was wondering if you could tackle two questions about this essay. Um, first, Singletary uses the concept of haunting as a point of departure for the essay. I was wondering if you could start out by explaining this decision and its importance. And then second, the essay looks at how American images of blackness have an impact on Afro-Germans. So then toward the end of your answer, I was wondering if you could also describe uh, some of what she does with this idea. Certainly. So uh, Kim was also in our first seminar in 2014, and we saw the potential immediately. Uh, and so we loved her project in particular because she's coming from the field of communications and communications and sort of rhetoric. And we thought that would be an invaluable contribution to, um, to, the, to our volume. And it is. She tackles this idea of haunting, which she um, is borrowing from sociologist Avery Gordon and for Kim, racial haunting really 
really sort of makes Mark's race. It allows race to have a presence. It's also so racial haunting is the sort of seeing of difference, acknowledging of difference in some respects, but then also removing difference. It's an embodied practice that's not only here in, 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 not only in the sort of German context, but could sort of be applicable in other sort of racialized contexts, which is certainly across the globe. And for her, it's really important to show that racial haunting is about things that aren't fully addressed. So on the one hand, you acknowledge a set, a degree of race, but then you also, um, also simultaneously ignore it and, um, um, and silence it. And so for her, Race, um, racial haunting occurs in a variety of ways in the German context. She refers to it as a stratified um, um, racial haunting. And for her first, racial haunting really requires blackness to haunt white Germanists and white Germans more generally. And what she means by that is that it sort of undermines what the sort of uh, the sort of uh, connective glue that allows Germans to think that they all belong together. So by haunting white Germanists, you're basically, you know, disentangling what is the glue that help, holds the sort of the national imaginary together. And so she, she's, is, she's allowing it to sort of open up more spaces for, um, for kinship and belonging. Secondly, she sees racial haunting as a way of uh, sort of Black Americanists haunting Black Germanists in the German context. And in all of these cases, she's looking at sort of material, um, she's looking at visual culture. She's in particular using two films to engage with this notion of haunting. The first film is Leroy from 2007 um, by director Armin Volker. And the second is sort of Leroy Kommt Auf, or Leroy um, Cleans Up, a sort of short film from 2006. And in these films, she's showing how Blackness is haunting, you know, white Germanness. And then she's also showing how Black Americanness uh, is haunting Black Germanness. And in that, in that sort of configuration, Black Germanness is often, um, Black Germanness is oftentimes seen, seen when people sort of engage sort of Black Germans, namely sort of their white German counterparts, is a presumption that Black Germans aren't from Germany. So their usual sort of interaction with Germans, um, Black Germans is, where are you from? I'm from Cologne. No, where are you really from? I'm from Cologne. <laughs> Why do you speak German so well? I'm from Cologne. <laughs> so, the <laughs> so the presumption is that they're always sort of not within the nation. They're they're in the nation, but not of the nation. They're always sort of foreign or others from without, so to borrow a Michelle Wright term. And so her her piece really sort of shows the layers of uh, racial haunting that are taking place on the cultural landscape in Germany. And she's using visual culture to sort of engage that. She's also showing layers of racial haunting historically in the German context, looking at instances, um, for example, like um, the Schwarze Schmuck or the sort of Black Horror on the Rhine that took place in the interwar period in, um, in the Rhineland area. So she's showing how different layers of racial, um, racial haunting occur and how that really sort of shows how Germans aren't necessarily engaging with the concept of race. There's sort of a, a, a silence and a, a, uh, and a willful silence uh, about race and racism and how she's sort of showing that being replicated in cinemata um, cinematic um, representations. And she's able to do that in some interesting ways. So when she looks at Leroy, so both Leroy films, the 2006 and the 2007 versions, she's showing how the main character, Leroy, is the main character. He's a black German um, youth. He is very wedded to his German identity. He has like a bust of Beethoven in his room. He likes classical music. He knows all of the sort of German history and culture, but he seems to be completely um, ignorant of his sort of black German identity. And, and, and in the film, he engages with a lot of um, other black Germans who are telling him that he should have a black um, consciousness. And that black consciousness isn't really a black German consciousness, it's a black American consciousness. And that consciousness really entails him 
you know, watching the film Shaft (laughs) or watching the film Blackula or engaging with sort of Malcolm X and sort of civil rights activism. It's not necessarily, you know, telling him to engage with like Maya Eames poetry, sort of Maya Eames, a sort of black German poet, or engaging with um, other sort of prominent like Philip um, Kabukopsil's work. So the the presumption of a black consciousness in the film is is an American black consciousness, which is oftentimes also equated with a coolness, so black American coolness. And so throughout the film, he's coming into this realization of who he is as a person only through his proximity to black Americanness uh, and sort of black American cultural um, symbols and music um, and figures. So he also has like a a poster of, um, I think, Muhammad Ali hanging in his room. So the whole film, basically, even though he is a black German youth, his black German identity is alighted. And it's basically the and his and his mother is a white German. His father is an uh, an um, an African immigrant. We don't necessarily gather through the film where he's from in Africa. It's a big continent, but he's just from Africa. So that identity is foreclosed to him as well. And his so he sort of multiple identities are foreclosed to him. But the only one that he seems to be able to sort of gravitate to and develop a consciousness through is a sort of black American identity. And for her, that's problematic because that continually forgets this longer legacy of black Germans in, in, in Germany that sort of predates the 1945 um, African-American GI soldiers and German women that has a longer lineage in the German context that we need to sort of really engage. And so this larger sort of cultural um, understanding of Leroy is really a cultural understanding of his identity that's eclipsed by his, his affinity with black Americanness in some respects. Um, great. And so at this point, I just want to move to another chapter, uh, Kavina King's chapter entitled uh, Black People of Color and Migrant Lives Should Matter. Racial Profiling, Police Brutality, and Whiteness in Germany. And this is the other contribution to this section about theory and praxis in the middle of the book. So its focus is racial profiling and police brutality in Germany. And so, Tiffany, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, what are some of the incidents um, that are covered in the essay? And what does King's evidence tell us about the extent of police brutality in Germany? Yeah, Kavina King's piece is really, she was invited to our um, 2014 uh, seminar. Sadly, she couldn't come, So, but we still wanted to include her work in some form in the volume. And so we talked with her about what were some things that she could potentially pitch for the volume. And this is one of them. And so we were really appreciative of it because we oftentimes see uh, the U.S. as a space for, you know, uh, of sort of a space for harsh realities in terms of like um, racial profiling, police brutality, and such. The the contrast is that Germany also has cases of police brutality, police violence, um, racial profiling, and there is. I mean, so this sort of larger um, construction of the U.S. is like the sort of gold standard, I guess, for racism. There's like a sort of, a, a, I guess, a racism Olympics in which the U.S. is always positioned as like, wow, they're getting the gold, whereas other European countries are like, we're not the U.S. Kavina's paper, her, her chapter, excuse me, really sort of illustrates that like Germany is equally complicit, that these, these structural issues, these sort of structural individual issues with regards to racism are deeply entrenched in, in the German context. And that that there's equally pernicious racial state violence um, in the German context. And she uses a variety of examples to do so. So she, her first example about that is uh, two th- in 2010, a black German architectural student is riding the train from, I think, sort of Kassel to um, Frankfurt. And he's basically racial pro- racially profiled by the police. Um, he's done nothing wrong. He basically tells them they're like the SS. You know, the police are offended. He's taken to jail. Um, and then he um, is released and he decides to sue. He decides that this is actually, you know, an overt example of racial profiling. At the sort of administrative court um, level, it's ruled that like what the police did was totally legitimate. It's okay for them to to search, control, uh, stop anyone based on stone color that that they constitute that constitutes as a viable um, criteria 
for um, policing. And then when it goes to the also a higher administrative court, they ruled that it was actually wrong um, to do this and that they owed um, the, the gentleman uh, an apology. And what, you know, Kavita tries to do with this example is shows that like clearly, you know, racial profiling has been occur- has occurred in Germany for years, but that this case in particular sets a precedent and that uh, a 2016 case occurred in which a black German family was also racially profiled. And in that case, it ruled in their favor that like what the police did was in fact, um, e- um, was uh, constitutes racially profiling and that was illegal. And so that sort of 2010 incident really helps to spawn this 2012 decision that really serves as a precedent for the sort of 2016 incident. In addition to that, she talks about the the New Year's Eve um, incidences that occurred in which, you know, um, some um, German women were allegedly assaulted by presumed and, and then sort of the media portrayal about this were presumed to be sort of um, Muslim men, migrant men, um, men of African descent. And so she talks about the sort of the, the, the media dis- constructions of that, those um, assaults, sort of, sort of 2015 to 2016. Um, and then she talks about the sort of per, um, the, the, the methods and sort of precautions that the German police took in 2016 slash 2017, in which they really racially profiled about uh, 650 men who were either sort of a Muslim descent, African descent, migrants, etc. And so they consciously profiled men who they presumably labeled um, um, nefaris, who are basically sort of men of North African descent who are intensive, you know, offenders. This is sort of the language that they used. Um, and she shows how this sort of type of racial profiling, it's much more sort of uh, the, she shows the embedded nature of racial profiling in the German case. And then she uses a variety of other examples to show um, there's an organization called the Campaign for the Victim of Race, Victims of Racist Police Violence and how this organization really tries to co- um, collect data about the, the number of racial incidences that have occurred. And they actually published a report in 2014 about these, uh, these instances of racial violence that have oftentimes um, led to, to, to fatalities, to deaths. And so from the period of like 2000, 2000 to 2013, about 150 um, individuals um, were dealing with racial profiling in the German context. She also talks about the cases of individuals who died in police custody. Um, and so her, her, her chapter really does a good job of showing that like Germany is also um, a space where racial state violence is pervasive where black and brown and people of color, you know, these bodies are policed, controlled, stopped, and that police feel um, empowered to do so and that they have the ability to do so at win. She also talks about sort of the UN report about sort of issues of racism in Germany and how the UN report long confirmed what people of color, black Germans, migrants, and people of color in Germany had been saying is that they've been racially profiled for years from the state and that the state is a willing um, a willing accessory in, um, in, in these practices. And we think that her, I think that her piece in particular shows that this, this instance of racial, these instances, excuse me, of racial um, profiling, racial injustice, racial violence are contingent upon this larger issue of a willful amnesia about racism in Germany. And that this is a historical dynamic in which she's engaging with scholars like Fatima Al-Taib. And she's also sort of engaging with scholars like Maisha Uma. And which she's saying that, that Germans don't think that they're racist. And part of this is a, a part of this is a, a legacy from that sort of dates back to sort of the ending of um, the Second World War and how, you know, with the sort of um, fall of the Third Reich, that everything was copacetic. We're not racist. We can purge all of these from from our lexicon. We won't say these things. But that really doesn't engage the fact that these issues are still on the ground on an everyday level. So there's quotidian um, quotidian racism that has material impacts for people of color um, in the German context. And that her piece really tries to push this notion that like there is a willful amnesia about racism and an extension about race in the German context, even till this day. 
because even when you sort of talk to, you know, when I've talked to a few friends in, in Germany, they're like, oh, that, you know, that police brutality is certainly bad there. And you're like, yeah, it's also bad here. Here are some examples that you can look at to sort of see that there's some equally pernicious practices here in the German context. Great. Thank you, Tiffany. And now that I've uh, put both of you in the awkward position of having to discuss the work of your colleagues, um, Vanessa, I can put you uh, somewhat in your comfort zone because you contributed an essay of your own to the volume. And it appears in part three of this book, which is devoted to the topic of art and performance. And your essay is entitled Refashioning Post-War German Masculinity Through Hip Hop, uh, The Manly Black-White Identities of Sammy Deluxe. And so uh, I was wondering if you could uh, tell us about this essay, um, tell us about the artist that you focused on and how his music and album art, uh, you know, contributes to our understanding of how gender is performed. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. So Sammy Deluxe, he was born in Hamburg in 1977. So I sort of take a post-war approach to, to his album, his albums, because I'm thinking through, you know, what is it that Black German masculinity um how is it that it's marked as different from white German masculinity in the post-war context? Um, and so he he's, like I said, born in the 1970s, and he starts to become a mainstream musician in the early 2000s. And his, his performance has really shifted a lot. I think he's one of those people who sort of changes his persona, but also changes um, the type of music he performs. So he starts out as this sort of like very um, toxic, masculine, like hip hopper. Um, and then he sort of changes over time. And I, I try to assess how he presents himself, how he performs that notion of, of self as an artist, right? Um, because he is um, named Sami Deluxe. It's not his real name. His real name is Sami Zorga. Um, and he is like one of the most famous German hip hoppers to date. Um, and of course, most of his um, audience, I guess, are the people who attend his performances are also white. So we have to think about the dynamic, the racial dynamic, the politics that play into that. Um, but really what I wanted to focus on is sort of how he appropriates to some extent, you know, this concept that, that Kim Singletary talks about in terms of like racial haunting. Like how does he draw on African-Americanness in his performance of self on his album covers? How does he differentiate himself from that? Does he show some sort of like progress? Is that buying into, you know, German Bildungsroman context? If I, if I sort of say, oh, he's changed over time, um, does that mean that I'm sort of imposing on him something that is tied to white German traditions of masculinity. Um, and so I really just wanted to see sort of what, assess how his multiplicitous identity um, shapes who he is and, and what he is as a performer and his music styles even shift over time. And so um, I focus on the ways in which he draws connections to black Germanness, but then also African-Americanness. And um, I'll give two, two examples that I use in the context of, you know, the larger chapter. Um, one of his early album covers from, Verdammt uh, nochmal. It's this image of him. Um, he's he's sort of depicted in this uh, baggy jacket. He's wearing a baseball cap, and you see that he's wearing you know gold and silver chains. And it's like your stereotypical what you would think is a stereotypical image of you know a hip hopper in the American context coming out of the 1990s, right? Um, and you see this large dollar sign with gems, and it's you know um, it's buying into that narrative of like money and and masculinity tied to money and consumption. Um, and on some level, he's using it to sort of sell himself, right, um, in the image of American hip hop um, context. And so that's one example. But then later on um, in his album Schwarz-Weiss that comes out, uh, what he represents there is really something completely different. Um, he's started to make, you know, transitions. And what you see then is his profile. It's it's a representation of just his profile image um, and that that image is done in black and white, of course. And so you could think of the associations that might be made or the connections that might be made to um, ethnographic images that are published in, you know, 19th century pseudoscientific um, documentations on racial categorization. Um, and so I started to think through that and how um, this particular image represents him as actually black German um, and also as mixed race because he is obviously seeing himself as something that's in between. There is no racial category that really um, he can ascribe to. He doesn't fit the definitions um, that are constructed because they're way 
way out of control and they're obviously illogical, right? Um, and so also it obviously depicts him as sort of inhuman um, in some of these some of these cover images. And so I think he's playing with that um, notion because what you see then is this like white and black melding together. You start to see the gray tones and, you know, you can interpret it as, um, I don't even know if I should say this on here, but um, it's not on public radio. So that is like a cum shot, right? Yeah. Um, and so it looks almost like there's, you know, dripping semen that's like sort of melding in this misogynistic context. And I think he's playing with that idea, right? Um, and also he's drawing on African tr- traditions where you see then the profile image. And I'm thinking of Patrizia Vestas um, work where she actually did the Mayaim Prize, and she uses the profile of Mayaim for that particular uh, literature uh, award. And so all of this is sort of at play here. It's so intertextual. And sometimes, you know, people have said to me, don't you think you're overinterpreting um, what he's doing here? And no, actually, I don't think I am. Um, the title of the album, Schwarzweiß, actually references Mayaim's poetry compilation. And so, you know, he's just because he's a hip hopper doesn't mean he's uneducated, doesn't mean that he's not obviously also engaged in um, the context of his own black Germanness and, you know, discourse on race and racism in Germany. Um, and he has gotten a lot of flack and it's certainly well-deserved in, in some contexts for being, you know, homophobic, um, for also being sexist in his songs. And so what I do is bring in the song lyrics to sort of try to show how on some level they counter the performance that he presents on his albums and on some levels they they sort of reinscribe it or affirm what he's trying to present um and so it's interesting to look at these sort of contradictions and i think a lot of his work is really contradictory um but that's sort of what black german masculinity is it's something that's you know hypersexualized but then it's also something that's not quite enough masculinity right um toxic masculinity and in many contexts is defined through whiteness and that's because it has proximity to power. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what I tried to uncover in this particular chapter. And I think the reason I chose to focus on Sami Deluxe um, is really because Black German masculinity and, and masculinity in the context of Black German studies is really, there's a dearth of information, there's a dearth of publications on it. And I wanted to bring that to the fore. And, um, you know, it also echoes uh, Priscilla Lane's new publication, she just uh, published her her uh, dissertation as a book, um, and it came out. It's called White Rebels in Black, and a lot of what she's doing is really teasing out precisely these notions of how white German masculinity and African-American masculinity and black German masculinity all sort of intersect um, and are interwoven, but obviously that there are also still those power elements that underlie all of that. And so I, I hope that that's how people have read this chapter and, and that they can see sort of the connections to um, her research and, and how this sort of expands then the scope of Black German studies. Well, that's great. Thank you, Vanessa. And I think at this point, I've taken up an awful lot of uh, your time uh, for both of you. And at this point, I'd like to ask the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And that is, I'd like to know uh, what both of you are working on now. And uh, I I think you have some uh, stuff that you're still working on together, but also you have your own individual projects. So I thought we could hear first from Vanessa and then Tiffany on this topic. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Tiffany and all, Tiffany and I always have ongoing projects together. I think that will always be the case. People can expect to see more from us. I'll let her talk uh, about that in a little bit. But um, currently, I'm working on a book project that's tentatively titled Black German Belonging, The Politics and Performativity of Heimat. And um, it really examines the centrality of the concept of home that's present in Black German cultural productions um, since really the fall of the Berlin Wall. And um, I tried to, to tease out how they um, self-define this term. And in many cases, it's not the same across the board, right? So I, I let the pieces speak to me instead of sort of imposing my own view on them. Um, I also have some forthcoming chapters in the volume After the Imperialist Imagination, um, which is a follow-up to Sarah Lennox's um, and, and Sarah Friedrichsmeyer and Susanna Zantop's volume. Um, I have a piece coming out or a chapter coming out in Global Black Girlhood and in The Many Voices of Europe. Um, and so all of these previous publications of are of mine and, and a few that are coming out sort of expands my initial research and some of them move beyond black Germany to black Europe. And that's sort of the direction I'm headed for now. Well, that sounds like you've been very busy. So, uh, and when the, when the monograph comes out, uh, hopefully uh, you can come back on new books in German studies and uh, Tiffany, yeah, how about you? Um, I am, 
working on a few things as well. My book, which is sort of making a move, making a movement, Black Germans, gender and belonging will hopefully be in production in the next few months. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm also going up for tenure. So I've been at finally like finished all my tenure documents and the decision will be made in the coming academic year. I have uh, two new articles that I'm working on. One is on uh, black cultural magazines in the 1980s and 90s. There are a variety of diasporic magazines in namely that were created in Berlin. And I'm going to be sort of thinking about sort of um, black diasporic cultural, um, not only cultural productions, but sort of their intellectual labor and their sort of intellectual um, uh, underpinnings and what is sort of pushing them to sort of pursue these uh, projects. And then another project deals more so with sort of black European activism. I'm looking at an anti-racist organization that was formed in the 1990s in Britain and how Black European activists came together. So Maya Eam was involved with this organization. Um, Ni Adi, who was also in war, uh, another Black German, who, um, who was both of these individuals were pretty key figures for the establishment of um, ISD in Berlin, sort of the ISD chapter in Berlin. Uh, and in addition to that, sort of... Um, I have a other a few other projects that I'm working on, sort of thinking about sort of black um, thinking about black diasporic activism in Europe more broadly. So, I have a, a forthcoming uh, piece that'll be um, written on uh, written about sort of Shirley Graham Du Bois and her experiences in Germany. I have another piece that I'm working on in terms of thinking about um, pedagogically thinking about the integration of. Um, racialized communities in historical classes. So, for example, incorporating more uh, studies about sort of Black Germans, Turkish Germans, etc., in a variety of my um, courses and what that means to get students to integrate, interrogate their notions of European identity. Um, and then, uh, most importantly, sort of Vanessa and I, like she said, we're certainly going to have a variety of projects coming in the uh, in the year. But in this year in particular, we're in um, we're working with Peter Lang. Where, so we basically have a book series in development that's tentatively entitled um, "Imagining Black Europe," in which we're sort of um, we're in which we're going to be launching the series at the end of the summer, early fall. So we're sort of now finalizing advisory board members, and we hope to uh, launch this you know, soon. And this is exciting. This is something that um, Vanessa and I are um, really excited about doing. Once again, Laura Pop from Peter Lang approached us to pursue this. And she's like, would you guys be interested? And we um, submitted a proposal. Uh, the editorial board has accepted our proposal. And now we're sort of working on finalizing advisory board members and etc. So that should be coming out soon. And that's exciting. That's great. Great news. And I think, you know, we certainly should have you back for uh, your forthcoming book, Tiffany, but it also sounds like both of you will have plenty of book recommendations for new books in German studies in the future from your book series. So that's wonderful. Yes, we will, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, thank you, Vanessa, for being on the show today. I really appreciate uh, you coming on and giving us your time. Thank you so much, Michael. And thank you, Tiffany, for coming on the show and giving thank us your time. Thank you so time. much for having us, Michael. Great. I really, I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, so today. did I. So thanks again for having us. Great. So you all have been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guests today were Drs. Tiffany Florville and Vanessa Plumley. We discussed their recent book, Rethinking Black German Studies, Approaches, Interventions, and Histories, published by Peter Lang in 2018. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll continue to listen.